Welcome to episode number 310 of Destination Linux. Destination Linux is a video podcast from the Text Digital Network. If you're new to the show, Destination Linux is a podcast perfect for all experience levels. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Jill. I'm Michael. And I'm Ryan. And on this week's wonderful episode of Destination Linux, we're going to be discussing Web 3.0. What is it and should you be excited about it? Then we have Danielle Foray from Elementary on the show to discuss the latest release. Woohoo! Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and more coming up right now on Destination Linux to keep those penguins marching. And this week's community feedback comes from Grant. And if you want to send in your own feedback, you can go to tuxdigital.com contact to get in touch and send us an email or join our forum. We also have Discord. If you want to hang out, game with the community, chat live about Linux, go to tuxdigital.com slash Discord. Grant goes on to say, hey guys, loved your recent episode, open source goals for 2023. In regard to Michael's question about automating the upgrade process, on my server, I've set up CronTab to run apt update and app upgrade, TACY and and reboot now every Monday at 4 a.m. So it takes care of it for me while I'm in the bed. Now, Michael, I think that we have had multiple discussions and tips and tricks and feedback yes. of people trying to solve this because they fear for your security. They fear for your privacy because of your update qualms that you have. And so, okay. you know, this person has created a very simple cron tab mm -hmm. here that anybody could run. I mean, I could get my grandmother knows nothing about Linux. Sure. Figure this out. Will you commit on this show in 2023 to setting up a process to update your system? See, I, I yes, I've already decided to commit to this, but not this particular cron job because I don't use apt. I have DNF. But uh, other than that, Are you back that, on yes, Fedora? I have Fedora and Ubuntu at the same time. Yes. At so depending on what I'm doing... Yeah, it's a multi-boot system. Why, why, why just pick That's one? It's not at really? the same time, really. You're not running them. I, well, at the I same also time. have a I have a laptop running too, so like you know, yeah, it can be at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, so I, do, I do plan on uh, fixing my updating system, not necessarily with this or even with an automated thing at in the you know four in the morning because I turn my computer off every day, and I don't know. And it used to be a thing where you shouldn't do that, and then it became a thing where you should, and I don't even know. So I just as a habit, I turn it off. I mean, is this not connected to the internet? I guess it's safer since you don't patch things. But one of the things that... <laughs> oh, in you, that case, then yeah, it's a good decision, Michael. Thanks. One of the reasons why you don't do this, honestly, isn't just for the operating system updates, but mostly because of the recording studio portion. You're afraid yeah, the, an app's going to change something, and you have so many things from the OBS scenes, other stuff all tied in together mm -hmm. to work properly. It has to be a familiar browser because you have an extension in OBS, for instance, for right. browsers and things like that. Everything has to kind of flow and connect. And if it doesn't, the show doesn't happen. So that's one of the fears that you have with doing it. So, I mean, one option, of course, is to hold back your updates on your apps themselves. Yeah, it's not really a stability but, thing for the system. It's just for the applications. I've had at times, I mean, I've done it multiple times where I've updated a any given application that's in my workflow that caused some, some breakage and I'd have to revert the version to an older version. So in some cases, I have a I have a particular install that is for production that I just have it as it is, and then I use it 
And if I need to upgrade, I will, but I could do it on a different install rather than doing it on the main one I'm going to be using. So that's really the policy I have. Now, does that correlate to the fact that um, I also only use that production all the time? Yes, but at the same time, that is uh, not the best choice. And I'm going to fix that this year. That was one, that's one of my you heard goals. heard it here. Michael's going to be a better <laughs> person in 2023. That's not so how that's I phrased very it, but okay, sure. You're going to become a better Aww. person. A better updater. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Grant. Thank you so much for the tip. Michael could really use a good cron job. <laughs> yep. You need to. <laughs> but no, in Michael's defense, he needs to be able to keep OBS and all his extensions that he uses the same every week so we can do the shows. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See, I, to a better I'm a critical piece of this show, people, is that's yeah. what we're saying. And my system is too. Sure, that's it. Yeah, that's it. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you at the awesome folks at Linode. Go to linode.com slash tux and see why over a million developers trust Linode for their infrastructure. Linode is who we trust for our infrastructure as well because they have award-winning support offering 24-7, 365 days support for ease of use and set up anything you need at any level of support. They're there for you. So if you just got the $5 node on your account, it doesn't matter. You still get the same level of support as everyone else. Linode has been a trusted partner for developers and businesses since 2003 because they offer the industry's best price to performance value for all their compute instances, included shared, dedicated, high memory. And one of my favorite things they offer is the GPU options. So you can do awesome stuff like machine learning, AI. You're hearing all about the chat GPT stuff. You want to play with some AI yourself. You can do that there in Linode. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible, allowing you to focus on your customers, not your infrastructure. Visit right now, linode.com slash tux to create a free account. And guess what? They're going to throw in another hundred bucks so that you can check out all the awesome experiences like one click no drops that you can do so you don't have to go through all the settings and do all this work to get your own server set up. You can if you want, but you can also go to the marketplace, one click, you got a new server up and running, like for instance, Mastodon, if you want to check that out. Go to linode.com slash tux and check it out. So I wanted to bring this topic on the show because there's not a week that goes by now where there's not an article that I see written about this or some YouTube personality talking about it something going on about web three and i don't know about you jill and michael but mm -hmm. uh web three was like what is it what is it supposed to do so we did a lot of research on the show we were trying to figure out and put these pieces together so that we could drop these knowledge bombs to you the community um and a little bit put the puzzles together and i'm sure there won't be a hundred percent way to get this right because there really is no web three it's kind of like yeah it constantly changes Kind of, like it constantly people's changes. interpretations of it changes and the the idea of web one and web two are very clearly defined and web three will we'll see what happens or if it even happens do we need well, a maybe web it That's wasn't clearly question. defined for web one to two when it was happening it just well, after the happened, fact yeah, and now right. it's easy to define so web three is probably kind of in a similar boat. But if we get anything wrong or you have qualms or you have praise to give us, I mean, that's always welcome too. Check out our yeah. forums. Go to tuxdigital.com. Check out our forums. You can let us know after the show. But we're, we're trying with all the research to put this piece together. 
And Web3's ultimate goal, based on all of the different articles, and again, there's a lot of different takes on what Web3 is, but the consensus is it's to embrace decentralization and what the internet is built on and operated on to move that control back to its users and away from all of the corporate control that's there today. Um, Web3's goal is to put the power in the hands of all the individuals, I should say back in the hands, because Web 1.0, when you think Mm -hmm. about it, yeah. It was really the first iterations <laughs> of the internet where people mostly just visited and read information and somebody who wrote a blog would have just as much chance of being seen on the topic as a corporation out there. Whereas today, because you have all of these billions and billions of websites and then you've got these algorithms, which only Michael probably understands, and all of this other stuff to try to figure out ranking, it's all owned by big corporations. If you type in a topic, there's going to be a corporation that's either farming for articles that they have created for them so that it hits some special algorithm thing to get them ranked, or they're paying people to write stuff and it's just lost a lot of that I don't know, fun and personalization that the internet used to be. The internet's not as fun anymore. I mean, That's it's true, useful. For sure. It's yeah, it used fun. to be the wild, I mean, wild west, and now it's just kind of corporate. <laughs> I mean, it's still, it's still kind of that in a much more yeah. accelerated way. But the idea yeah. that earlier you said that it was, you had just as much likelihood that your blog post would be read by, you know, so, or like by someone who's also looking for maybe a corporate article. It could be the same kind of. You know, yep. audience, and you're right, very little. You're just as much of the very little options of the audience that was there. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was smaller, right? So by that Drastically aspect, smaller. Yeah. Then, maybe, of course, maybe you're like going to have more. 1% the amount of audience there is now. Right. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's <laughs> what made it easier to have such a, you know, a decentralized appro- or a, approach to it is because... There weren't that many. There wasn't really a central option in the first place. I guess technically AOL sort of pro- provided that at some point. They were yeah. kind of that, but there were so many alternatives to it too. Oh yeah, that, that popped up. But AOL definitely was kind of one of the big corporate first corporate companies to really take off. And Web 2.0 came out. And for those who are kind of wondering what the Web 2.0 transition was, this is where user generated content really took off. So social media big way, YouTube, mm-hmm. those type of things, being able to share advanced media. Uh, if you remember when we were taking two uh, modems, 56K modems in my case, and shotgunning them together, and it still take, you know, if you're loading a movie or something, it would slowly sit there and load forever, or a picture would do piece by piece by piece yeah. of a picture. You know, things started really speeding up in Web 2.0. We were able to share stories faster, videos faster. Now I'm annoyed if I'm sending a video to someone and it takes longer than five seconds to send. I'm like, what is this? What are we back in medieval times? So slow. Send. It's so slow, but things really took off. And I know a lot of people will probably wish Web 2.0 from a social media standpoint didn't happen, but it did. And uh, there were some really cool things that happened with it and some really big issues that took place. Because once that became a thing, then all the corporations have pretty much taken full control of the internet. Not in all aspects. You can still create a blog. No one's ever going to be able to find it in a search engine. But you could create it (laughs) and then try to do a grassroots approach to get people to it. But it's obviously much more difficult because you also have a lot of standardization of what web browser people use, what search engine people use, all of that's been consolidated into corporate control. We talked about Chrome being overly dominant. We talk about Google search being overly dominant. 
And Google's now become a term we just use for searching the web. Oh, go Google it. Like it's so ingrained in us. So yes, Web 2.0 was cool. It is cool. It still is very valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as, a, as a person who created websites back in the day, the Web 1.0, web, the Web 1.0 to 2.0 transition was very valuable. Because it was fantastic. There, there was so yeah. much you could do in 2.0 stuff. Like the the technology enhanced within maybe five years to provide so much like you could start doing animations and stuff like that. Like obviously it would take, it would make your websites load slower, but the fact that you could meant that a lot of people did and including, of course I did too. Like yeah. the website a little yes. bit slower, but it was more fun. So yes. much more fun. <laughs> well, now you've got web three coming. And so the idea again, permissionless, you don't need to sign up for someone else's service or concede to their terms and conditions to utilize things or to meet and see other people is one of the dreams for this. Many people imagine Web3 as having a standard currency. And of course, the crypto community wants that to be like Ethereum or Bitcoin so as not to rely on payment processors that are able to set rules for what type of content they'll allow, what type of content they won't. And then a lot of people talk about blockchain because the underlying technology that will power Web3.0, again, in some people's imagination of what Web3 will be, is blockchain uh, or better known as kind of a distributed ledger which is just a database hosted by a network of computers instead of just a single authority kind of hosting all of this. So in, in that idea, you couldn't just shut something down or take it off the internet because you don't like it or it doesn't agree with your thoughts or feelings on the thing. It will always be there on this ledger. And I think it's important, though, to distinguish that blockchain is not cryptocurrency. So when I say blockchain, mm-hmm. some people have Big issues with cryptocurrency, and that's not mm-hmm. the argument. When you say crypto, in. you sometimes get ew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they instantly, or some people absolutely love crypto, and yes, they're they're related, but blockchain can be in completely independent. So just because you see Web 3.0 using blockchain, don't automatically assume it has to be a cryptocurrency thing. So that's kind of the concepts of what people imagine Web 3 is going to be. And I guess my question to you, Jill, first, mm-hmm. and then to Michael is, do you all believe this is really Web 3.0? This will be the future of the internet. And if so, what proof do you have? No, I'm kidding. You don't have to answer the last part. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think absolutely this needs to happen. We need to kind of go back to the days of Web 1.0, Web 1.0, when we had open hardware and open software and <laughs> more open system for the internet and without uh, uh, centralization. And we definitely need to decentralize the internet to put control back in the hands of the people and for better security. But I realize this is going to be very hard to do. Yes. <laughs> very we have, hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we have a society that, that builds upon, you know, making money off the internet. And yeah, so, sometimes that doesn't, doesn't work with, <laughs> with having a, a, a decentralized standard. One thing that's interesting is that uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, has actually been pushing to decentralize the web and take, you know, take back power from, the, from those that profit from centralizing it, like Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And he has a lot of interesting ways of going about this using what was called a solid pod, yes. where, yeah, the, the information stays our, on our own computer, kind of in our own personal intranet. 
And, so uh, I played with yeah. the pod concept um, and I actually set one up and it's an interesting idea that basically yeah. you decide what you want to share in this pod and then the pod can distribute to these places, but it's only, almost like in a read-only mode and that at any yeah. point I can go and kind of change what's in my pod and then that would obviously go through to the rest of the internet and if I deleted something, nobody would see that what I deleted, it would just be this pot of information. So I have control of what I'm giving out there, whether it's my name, my favorite hobbies, uh, the fact that I like to make fun of Michael on the weekends, like whatever <laughs> that, but let's say I wanted to delete that. No one me. knew that. That's a shocking thing, Ryan. Yeah. No shocking. one knew that. Um, but Michael, you said when Jill was talking, Hey, this is going to be really, really hard. Now we have examples of this already today of people who are, services that are working off of a web 3.0 like concept with the federation you have mastodon or or version similar to like a federated that you have PeerTube, odyssey matrix i mean they're already there what do you mean this is hard well the reason why it's hard is actually uh, kind of interesting because it's the decentralization is a is a nice concept it, you know the, the federation that is existing that allows to kind of connect different decentralized pods and stuff like that it sounds good and it, it would be great if that was possible, but the, uh, the ideal situation isn't usually the practical solution. And in this case, it's not really going to be, in my opinion, it would be great if what Jill said happened, but I have very little expectation that it would even be possible because in terms of social media, centralization is a requirement. It's a critical component to, for a social media network to exist, to have a network to go to, to participate in the network. So any of the social media networks that are decentralized basically are just creating more and more complication and, con and convolution that makes people not want to use it. I mean, we've, se we've seen this with the whole Twitter Mastodon fiasco. So Twitter created this huge problem for themselves with, for really no reason. Everybody's aware of this part. And Mastodon, it was a very popular suggestion as an alternative. And a lot of people did ch switch to it and use it and like it. And that's great, but there's also a lot of people who saw how complicated it was and chose to just go back to Twitter, even though Twitter was being terrible. So in terms of this decentralization, there is definitely some you know, potential I would like for it to happen. I just don't see it coming to fruition anytime soon at the current structure that it's being positioned. If someone were to come up with a better way of doing it, then it might be, but the current, uh, all the current options I've seen they're not likely to take over because of the whole idea that you need mass adoption for something to become the go-to for something to become the, the platform that is the mainstay and the decentralization concept doesn't allow for a mass adoption to even happen. Well, what about like how we talked with Danielle for an elementary OS about the fact that the flat hub, for instance, that's a centralized place to get applications. Sure. But you also have the option, of course, of being off of that. So I, I understand what you're saying with things like Mastodon. Mastodon has a major mm -hmm. problem. Oh, there's many major problems. Yeah, Maybe that's discoverability. A whole episode. <laughs> it's but one. discoverability yeah. is the biggest one that people yeah. were complaining about that moved to Mastodon. It's like, yeah, I moved there and the 50 people who saw my tweet went and found me, but now nobody else can find me because I'm on this other network and they're on this other network and the other networks aren't allowed to see each other. And Mastodon did this on purpose because there's a lot of illicit stuff that goes on in Mastodon behind the scenes. And so they don't want everybody to be connected necessarily. 
And now we have a place where, okay, you're on social media, but barely anybody can find you unless you have a platform like we do on a podcast or whatever, where I can announce where I'm at. It really starts to remove the whole purpose of social media to begin with. Right. So I agree with you. Matrix is the same way. We, we've yeah. talked about our we, issues with Matrix. Yeah, we, we found out the hard way that Matrix is uh, something that's just, it has a lot of potential, but is not ready yet. Yeah, and, and so I think, though, if you look at this from, is it ready now? My answer is no. Are there solutions to these problems that could be found, like FlatHub, where you do have a centralized place, but you also have the ability to do separate things? There could be well, answers here. I just don't think the current iterations are them. I agree with that. And I also think that FlatHub is a great example that you brought up because the original introduction of Flatpaks did not have the FlatHub. I think there was about a year or two where it was just yeah. Flatpaks as a format and there was no way to get them. And I remember, because I, I distinctly remember making comments and jokes about how people were saying that FlatHub, FlatHub Flatpak was going to take over. And I thought, How? Like the only, there was only 14 flat packs that existed at the time and there was no way to get them because the only ones you could get are from Gnome directly. And that was it because there wasn't a way to find them. And they were talking, they were promoting this whole create your own remote slash store to get the flat packs. And that just didn't work. And then eventually they came to realize that they did need to create a centralized store, which was the flat hub. And that made it so that the flat packs format could become what it is now. And I think that in certain cases, this is a possibility to take something that is the ability to do decentralized and make it work still. But in the case of the flat hub, it works because there's a central default and then decentralization option. What most of this Web3 stuff is talking about is having decentralized everything and they're, you know, kind of good luck figuring out where you want to go sort of thing. The method of doing that is just going to end in a way that most people are going to go back to the corporate funded platforms anyway. So I like the idea of a decentralized platform or decentralized hubs, but there needs to be some level of centralization for it to, I mean, in my opinion, at this point function really at all. Cause if you're going to, if you want mass adoption, if you want the mainstream users to use these types of platforms, you have to make it easier for them to use and if it requires you to, I mean, set up SSL keys or SSH keys and then set up the, the, uh, like the way that matrix does it, where you have to have one device connected to allow another device to log in and you got to do this QR code scanning and all this stuff like, yeah, that's great for security, but it also means that people are not going to use it because you've put too many barriers. And I, I think that applies to the decentralized aspect as a whole, because just even having, we have to explain what Web3 even is. We have to explain what decentralization is to talk about it. And that is in itself the the biggest problem. Yeah. Whereas like Web, Web 1.0 and Web 2.0, most people have no idea those even exist or even care because it just yeah. works and they just use it. It's fine. It just became a standard, right? Where we call it Web 2.0, but from a user experience, it was just technology growing yeah. and the tech it just was, advanced yeah, and it worked it. on all your devices and you didn't have to do any special sign up process or anything. It just was kind of seamless. And web 3.0, I think is definitely in the design stages still. So a lot of these things we're seeing are very early implementations of what a Fediverse and things could be. Um, but I agree. There's nothing yet that I've seen that makes me go, this is the future um, of the internet. 
uh, yet. I, the concept, the idea of owning my information, of course, I immediately think that that would be amazing and putting the yeah, tool back in the user's hands. But the implementations we have as examples, they're for geeks and, and all of us nerds and stuff on here. Yes, of course, we can use them and interact and it's fine. For everybody else, if I was trying to convince someone to switch away from Facebook and check out Mastodon as an influencer, <laughs> you're going to have a really hard time. As a regular user, because I see some of our patrons are saying things like, hey, I have better interactions on Mastodon. I have more intimate interactions where I get to know people better. Well, well it's more because intimate it's, because there's fewer people. <laughs> there's so few people. And also as an influencer, when you look at something like YouTube, for instance, how many people have tried to replace YouTube? And I'll tell yes. you the thing that keeps everyone from replacing YouTube. YouTube, as a creator, I can make a living. Any other platform you mention, I cannot. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're never going to draw people away from creating content on YouTube when you can make thousands and millions of dollars on YouTube. And my alternative is, yeah, but the other one's going to make people feel more private and safe and they own their stuff. It's just not, they need to make a living. And it's kind yeah. of like the whole elementary developer situation where they're trying to set it up so developers can get donations. People need to make a living when they're writing the software. It's the same thing for content creation. Like you got to be able to make a living off of this stuff. And when the only living alternative is cryptocurrency and well, I mean, I'm not again going to go deep into that, but there's some problems there. We can leave it at that. Uh, that's not necessarily a viable option for people either is the cryptocurrency solution there. Um, when yeah, people just make up their own one and you never know what the dollar is going to be valued at to make payments mm -hmm. or do stuff you need to be alive. And so that's true. I'm excited about Web 3.0. I'm yeah, not trying to poo poo too. on all these ideas here. <laughs> it's just there's no there, there's implementation. Yeah, yeah, there's there a, a fix, fix, but we have yet for it to come and it'll probably come with a, a variation on chat GPT <laughs> or, or uh, AI, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely going to be some element of that for sure. Whether yeah. that's 3.0 or not, I, I don't know. But the AI stuff is is very interesting and is going to be a big uh, change, game changer. You know, probably for a long time. Yeah. But the the decentralized thing, like as you said, that the making money on the on the on, the, on YouTube as an option, and with PeerTube and Odyssey, you don't really have that option. Odyssey, you have more so than PeerTube because there's no there's no functionality in PeerTube whatsoever for that. And Odyssey has the crypto, which is nice. But like you said, there's really no way you can rely on it, right? Yeah. There's well, no real money to be made on it either. Because when you look at, you have to get people to go to these platforms in mass. Yes. We get questions all the time like, why are you on YouTube? Why aren't you just on Odyssey and everything else? Because our audience would be 80 people <laughs> versus tens of thousands of people we could get our message to across the other thing. We have our videos on all those platforms. Yes, uh, we do it. We do it as so people can, yeah. if they want to, they can watch it on those platforms. But if we were just exclusively on those platforms, that would be kind of guaranteeing that we're limiting our approach and our reach and why. Like, And we're in this realm. We know this realm. Now imagine creators who have no idea what you're talking about when you right. say Facebook privacy issues, decentralization, don't share. They have no clue. They just want to use the internet to upload their new creator TikTok dance and move on. You're not going to lure them with just the offerings that you have there 
with this. You you have to have a bigger audience there. So I think there's some real issues, but it's interesting you mentioned chat GPT and AI, because when I think of Web 3.0, I actually don't think of this Fediverse piece because I'm not seeing an implementation of it yet. And I know it's going to get me a lot of hate mail. I'm just being honest with people. I'm opening my heart here. I've yet to <laughs> yeah. see an implementation I think is actually good of the Fediverse where it's Same. when I say good, I mean that it's going to take off like gangbusters and everyone's just like, oh my gosh, where has this been my whole life? I don't see it. I just don't see it. But when you look at chat GPT in AI, I think companies like Google who have complete control of search are in mm -hmm. big trouble. We mentioned this yeah. before that Google yeah, actually <laughs> went on red alert inside their internal company memos over chat GPT because they think they're in big trouble as well. And Microsoft just gave ChatGPT $10 billion literally the same wow. week that they're laying off 10,000 people from mm. their AR and VR stuff because Microsoft thinks there's a future here as, as well. And so there's something to be said about this AI piece of when I'm using ChatGPT, for instance, I'm thinking, why do I need Google? Because it's Google, but with better answers and more information than I was getting before. I can go deeper into the questions without having to look at a thousand ads and all of this irrelevant sites I don't want to see and yeah, all, all of this stuff. <laughs> so I think there's a way that Web 3.0 could be more private and have more effectiveness than the current Web 2.0. I'm just not sure the Federation is it. And I yeah, know, send your hate mail. My name's Michael, by the way. <laughs> this is the voice of Michael. Send your hate mail to Michael. Because I know that hurts wow. a lot of y'all's feelings, but it's just, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. He's, he's just it. being honest that his name is also Michael. Just but my honest. name's Michael, yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is something on a happy note. There is a technology I am hoping that makes it back to Web uh, 3. We had this technology back in Web 1. <laughs> so the ability to be able to finally... You know, make one of the first metaverse standards more popular, the 3D object websites created using VRML or virtual reality modeling language. I had played with this back in the mid 90s, and it was so cool to, to build a 3D scene like with, with simple um, primitive objects like spheres and uh, uh, cubes and have each of those be a hyperlink to another page. Or if you you clicked it, you could run an animated GIF on it. <laughs> See, that to me is more futuristic. That's like yeah, dreaming yeah. of what the internet could be versus Web yeah. 3.0 that is these <laughs> other folks' vision. Danielle Foray said this best. It almost feels like to 3.0 and other people's vision is going back to 1.0. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, That's and, interesting. And it is kind of what yeah. you're talking about, Jill, is like a minority <laughs> report like Internet where we might be sitting yeah. in a virtual go to a website and you're virtually looking around and seeing in the three dimensions like, yeah, this website accents. and interacting with information. Yeah. And then you couple in things like AI and augmented uh -huh. reality. This becomes much cooler to me, much more like the future than like going exactly. back to, I don't know, AOL text message stuff. Well, <laughs> it's actually interesting well, you described that like that, Jill, because that <laughs> reminds me of a particular movie scene in Jurassic Park where the girl sits down at the computer and says, oh, this is a Unix system. I yes. know this. And then it becomes like this whole meme where people use that as a reference of saying, this is how ridiculous movies are. And they try to make things super elaborate to, you know, make it seem much more complex and much more cool that they're doing all this hackery stuff. Yeah. And 
it took for a long time. I did not know this, but maybe I think like a few years ago, I found out that the Jurassic Park scene where she's going through the computers and showing this 3D kind of virtual reality sort of thing, mm-hmm. getting files to folders and all this stuff is real. It was they didn't make it up for the movie. That was yeah, actually it was a, a real a, thing. It was a, a menu navigation you could use in like ninety two. Yeah, and they in just fact, saw it, it and put it in the movie, and then that created this. Oh, really? Kind of yeah, I didn't know just that. trend. Yeah. yeah, they created a trend of ma- being super ridiculous, elaborate in their in their um, the movies and stuff. But the thing that caused that trend was real. Was real, and in fact, it uh, Sun Microsystems. It was their project called Project Looking Glass, and you can down l- download a Linux ISO with the, the 3D desktop Looking mm-hmm. Glass desktop, and it's Man. incredible. And it was developed on Unix, and then uh, now you know on li- it's on Linux, and it was fantastic. And in fact, uh, VRML or the Virtual Reality Modeling Language actually was developed at Silicon Graphics. So it was developed on Unix. <laughs> nice. <Wow. laughs> so so yeah, it also and made a really cool like 3D <laughs> menu system for your desktop. So you could go into like a 3D yes. mode in, in, in addition to like the others, the other stuff we were talking about. They also yeah. made, I can't remember what it was called, but I remember saying it, it was like, um, have, it was like a demonstration of what you could do with Java. Yeah. Yeah. That the job, well, that's what the project Looking Glass uh, was. That was part of the implementation. Was the, mm. the are you Java saying working. we're bringing back three D movies? Yeah, because I'm pumped. <laughs> maybe, finally, maybe. I, yes. I I had friends that worked at Sun that actually were working on the development of Project Looking Glass in the in of course the Java you did, Jill. projects. <laughs> so. Jill's like, I actually wrote it and <laughs> no. designed it, and I told yeah. them how to make it. Well, you know, the the founder of the World Wide Web, the inventor, Tim, I've played with his pod system. I think it's an interesting concept. I think the Federation is an interesting concept as well. It's just, I really think we have to step back, you know, with all this technology and think, is what's going to make the web a flawless transition to 3.0, like 1.0 to 2.0 is, and not something that makes things much more difficult for people. Because it's one thing to say, mm-hmm. it'd be really cool if we controlled our own data. But it's another thing to then ask people who don't know that they should care about this to care about it, and then to yeah. go through hoops and things to switch. Oh, yeah. So you want it to be a cooler technology. You want that kind of move away from all of these corporate interests, but you want to do it in such a way that's more seamless. And then for funding this, I, I really think people need to think twice about the cryptocurrency thing because it just has so many people who just do not believe in it. And for good valid reasons for their caution on it, that this isn't the future of currency either. And so when you interweave that and say Web 3.0's cryptocurrency payment method with decentralization, I think you lost about 70% of your population in that mm-hmm. one sentence right there of people wanting to move to web 3.0. So again, I'm really excited about the idea of web 3.0. It'll be interesting to see, maybe we're wrong, maybe it'll all get centralized and that is the future and and that will be it. But I like Jill, your vision of the future better. Yeah. 3D websites, (laughs) AI, 3D worlds. That's much more fun, yeah. And the Jurassic Park reference, of course, like let's just throw it all in there and make web 3.0 the next big fun thing. (laughs) <laughs> but you know what you're going to need, whether it's web 1.0, 2.0, or 3.0, is good password protection. And Bitwarden's here for you. It doesn't matter what .o of web you're on, Bitwarden's going to work on it. So head to bitwarden.com slash tux, that's slash T-U-X, 
Password Manager software allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. Bitwarden provides you the tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords and usernames, and even automatically fill it in for you. The best part is it's available on all of your devices, whether it's on a web browser, mobile app, desktop applications, even the command line, Bitwarden works everywhere. And my favorite part is Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your device. So you know you're the only person with access to your data. So go to bitwarden.com slash tux and check it out for absolutely free. They want you to see how amazing the service is. So it's completely free. But once you get to using it, you're going to want to pay for their $10 per year. That's it. $10 per year. That's all you have to spend. And it's been the same price since we've been running this. You need to grab it now. Everything else is inflated. Bitwarden's kept the price the same. Bitwarden.com slash tux. And you're going to have an option for a $10 premium account per year. This is $10 a year. One gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, Priority Customer Support, all for $10 a year. Come on, people. You got to go. Got to go right now. Bitwarden.com slash T-U-X. Greatest password manager on the planet. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. This week, we have a special guest joining us to talk about the next release of Elementary OS that is coming very soon. Joining us is the founder and CEO of Elementary, Danielle Foray. Danielle, welcome back to the show. Hi. While we're all familiar with Elementary OS, we have a lot of new listeners trying Linux for the first time or thinking of trying Linux. So can you explain to our new listeners what Elementary OS is and why they might want to check it out? Sure. So Elementary OS is a computer operating system that is built on Linux. And so we uh, build it as a replacement for Mac OS and Windows, if you're not really sure what an operating system is. Um, and kind of our special sauce is that we're, we're built on a mix of inclusive design and open source software. And we use a pay what you want business model. So we think that that keeps our uh, incentives aligned with yours. And so we don't have any ads. There's no tracking, uh, no spying, no big enterprise customers or government contracts or investors or anything like that. So we can build uh, elementary OS just for you, the individual, like unique as you are with all of your special needs. That's a really interesting uh, take on it of, of mm-hmm. building an operating system for the people. This seems completely contrary to everything we know <laughs> about operating systems in the world. Windows, Mac OS. I, I love that you Is put it, yeah, that. Yeah, I'm so confused by this statement. Yeah. You know? How could we do this for people? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We talk about it later in the show, we're going to talk about Web 3.0 and some of the implications that has of bringing things back to the people as well, which is kind of interesting that this kind of all ties in. Because when I think of elementary, too, I think about an amazing UI experience. That's mm-hmm. one of the yeah. first things Smooth. when somebody says elementary, it's the first thing that pops in my mind is that ease of use. And you have a new version of elementary codename Horace out there. And you mentioned in your blog on this that. The App Center is the centerpiece of the elementary experience. And this really caught me because we've talked about on this show how software stores from so many distros, frankly, are not a great experience. But again, when I think about elementary, it's a really different experience when you've tried elementary. So tell me about some of the improvements that you've made in this version of App Center and why you consider App Center to be this centerpiece of elementary. Yeah, so I think like, when you think about like what is an operating system, like the primary 
goal of your operating system is to support the things you use to work and play and express yourself. And those are the apps, right? So getting apps you need is the most important thing that an operating system can do for you. And so App Center is our take on the App Store, and it's uh, completely open source, and it's uh, decentralized. It's built on um, the Flatpak technology, which is made to be decentralized, and it's cross-platform across other Linux distributions. So that's kind of like the core technology behind it, the core philosophy behind it. So um, in this version of App Center, some of the things that we focused on were making app descriptions more uh, engaging and providing more information. So uh, as part of our efforts for um, like responsiveness, making uh, apps work better on small and large displays, we show more screenshots. Like when you expand the window larger, you can see more screenshots at once. And app developers can now supply uh, brand colors for the page and they can add captions to the screenshots. Automatically, you get some really nice looking screenshots that are more comparable to what you see, like people having to pay designers to make on mobile app stores. Like they just kind of work like that. And and so we're trying to make it easier for developers to write like really good looking um, app pages. And uh, let's see, another thing we added was like, uh, we have more release notes on the page and you can also add uh, links to issues. Yeah, I think we really want to empower developers to to make those release notes available so that when people are are looking at their apps in the app store they can see oh this is actively developed like they're engaging mm-hmm. with people when they report issues and and listening and that each new release actually provides value yeah so i think that's a really important to to, to communicate on our on our app pages some of these uh, the app stores have like d- description data that's old for years so having that yeah. as an option yeah. is always great Right. I I love that the layout of the App Store and and the having the developers be able to, you know, add color and uh, you know, make it look Stand more out. like a web, pra- web page yeah. and and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really Well, well nice. that's really what Elementary has been the forefront leader of. Um in, yeah. in my opinion, we talked about this on the show when you changed the App Store to make it easier for people to donate to Mm -hmm. various Mm -hmm. app developers, which is such an important thing that it's not that our users, I think, don't think about or don't want to. It's that they don't necessarily think about it. And if the app store, if you're just clicking things to download randomly and you install it and you never have to pay for it and there's no prompt to ever pay for anything or donate anything, maybe you just forget that that app is really important to your workflow but in elementary, it makes it more of a forefront that pay what you want model of mm-hmm. kind of reminding users, hey, you're still using this thing. It's really important to you. Maybe you should give a yeah. donation to that developer out there. Yeah. And to me, every app store should be taking that and doing that same thing. We need people to really be thinking like there are individuals who are spending all of their free time or maybe all of their time working on this thing. And we need to show them some appreciation for it. Yeah, absolutely. Like we noticed, um, so we've been using like the pay what you can model on our website for quite a while now. And um, we used to just kind of have a separate donation thing, right? And we noticed when we switched it to um, being one flow where you download and you pay what you can at the same time, like even having the option for zero there, just making that one experience instead of two separate experiences, that you really increase the amount of people that are willing to put in a dollar. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
We've talked about it so many times here on Destination Linux, how your app center should be in every distro <laughs> because yeah. of that reason. You did such a seamless job with with downloading and donating and the look and feel. It's it's really was really progressive at the time when you were developing it. And it still is because no one else has one as good. <laughs> it was not only progressive, <laughs> but you. it took risks yeah. because yes, other people yeah, were risk. afraid to do that. And yeah. I know, I'm sure, because, you know, I'm on the internet too and I get flack for everything I say, <laughs> that you probably got some <laughs> flack for it as well. But the fact that you all oh, yeah. did it uh, and, and pushed that, I feel like it's you set the standard for what an app store should be and you set the standard for how developers should be thought of and, and kind of treated there. It is a really important thing you all did in elementary. So just hats off to you for that. Yeah. Thank you. And Danielle, there are so many wonderful enhancements to OS 7. And we will actually have a link to the blog post in the show notes. However, I wanted to touch on performance. What are some of the ways the team has worked to improve overall performance in Elementary 7? Yeah. So like you said, there's so many things like I feel like I could I could go on forever. We could have multiple shows talking about everything <laughs> yes. that's changed. But um, yeah, with regards to performance, you know, especially like one of the big things I think in increasing performance is like doing fewer things sometimes. So going through the code and refactoring things to do less where it can do less or not to do the same work multiple times. And so it's kind of like that um, Bruce Lee quote, right? That Like it's not about <laughs> the daily increase, it's about the daily decrease, like hack away at the inessential mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Like I think that's such an important part of increasing performance. Is that's like what I do with Ryan. Like <laughs> The, yeah, the unimportant things. Yeah, yeah exactly. just coming out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But um, also like, you know, the one of the more obvious ways to increase performance is to do more things at the same time, right? So using like asynchronous functions. And um, so we have really um, found places in the operating system where like the UI was being blocked by background tasks or things like that, where we're like, okay, let's figure out a way to make this asynchronous so that we'll report that we're working on something or loading something. And then, you know, the user interface will populate with the data once it's done instead of getting stuck there. So you can still navigate or it can be, you know, canceled or things like that. So that's a big thing. But also just um, relying on our upstreams and trusting them and uh, making sure that we're using the latest upstream libraries. And sometimes when we're doing things like manually ourselves, like this problem has been way better solved by an upstream. And so knowing when to rely on others uh, is really important and migrating to new technologies like GTK4 and using uh, the latest yes. mutter and things like that. <laughs> Which also helps improve gaming performance as well. <laughs> yeah. I actually do some gaming on my elementary OS install. On I was talking to Daniela earlier. I have it on an older iMac. In fact, a 2015 iMac and it runs beautifully and I'm able to run games on Steam on it. It's so nice. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, too, like we rely a lot on feedback from people to talk about like, mm -hmm. hey, you know, these are where we're experiencing slowdowns to know where to pinpoint it. But we're also running elementary OS on like all kinds of different hardware. Like you said, we've got fast computers and slow computers, big ones, and small ones, desktops and notebooks. Like um, we've really been testing it a lot more on ARM devices like the Pinebook. And so that's nice. pointed out places where we can improve performance nice. too. 
Yeah, and making use of tools like sysprof, you know, to like profile something and find out like this is exactly where slowdowns are occurring. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And also min- earlier you mentioned that Elementary OS uses flat packs for apps, which is interesting because Elementary OS is also based on Ubuntu. And with Ubuntu the, the being the team behind Snap's uh, format, it ma- makes people you know kind of curious why you chose to do flat packs as your primary universal app packages. So, from like the, a developer standpoint, what what made you go through that direction? Yeah, um, so I, I, we actually have like a couple blog posts about this. So maybe we can sneak one of those links into the show notes. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. You know, we adopted Flatpak as our um, app packaging format for Elementary OS like four years ago now, and um, we actually were um, pretty early on on like the technical review board for Snap and participated in Snap sprints. And so we really did look into that a lot. It wasn't like a knee jerk decision, but. You know, one of the big things was that we wanted to have this good, like, side loading and alt store story for the app store and make sure that we weren't creating a walled garden. And Flatpak is decentralized by design. Like, it's just made for that. Like, it's made to not assume that there's a certain remote that you're using. And so, if we want to build a story where people can add different alternate stores like Flathub, or, you know, get packages directly from developers that are supplying in that way. Like flat packages seem like the obvious choice to go for that thing. That makes sense. It's very interesting because it's our mm-hmm. choice too. We're very happy you yeah. chose right. flat pack, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say that. Like, it seems like, you know, the consensus from the community is that they prefer flat pack too for both um, indie developers and for the people that are trying to get those apps. It seems like people like the experience of flat pack better. Yeah, yep. I think the the idea of having a centralized store like the Flat Hub for flat packs is critical and important. But I also like the fact that they made the format not require that central store. So I think that that's I think that's why it's being so far widely adopted. Yeah, absolutely. Like we wouldn't have been able to do what we are doing if we had to use Flat Hub. Like being able to have a separate flat pack mm-hmm. remote that we can you know use our policies for and build it right. the way that we want it and. Like that we're able to deliver a different experience using the same technology, but then also give people choice. If they're like, hey, I do want to use that store, then it's super easy for them to use it. Awesome. There is actually a feature in elementary OS I wanted to talk about where users can send feedback directly to the development team via an app. Woohoo! Tell us about this app and what users can expect when they report something. And why you're so brave to make it that easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Have you not heard of internet comments? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that like one of the biggest advantages that we have um, at elementary, both over like proprietary operating systems and over traditional Linux distributions is the ability for people who are using our operating system to send feedback directly to developers, to see development on those things happen transparently in real time, and then to get fixes and new features and updates like throughout the entirety of the life cycle and not have to wait like a couple years to get that feedback back from developers. So we're trying to create this like virtuous cycle of feedback and updates. And um, the feedback app, I think is really important for that because something that we heard Um, a lot from people is that they wanted to report feedback. They wanted to request new features or report issues, but they're having a really hard time navigating issue trackers and GitHub. That's fair. Yeah. The, the biggest thing that we heard first was that people were having trouble finding which repositories to report issues on. So the feedback app is first designed to 
solve that problem. So when you open it up, you'll see like different categories of uh, things, different parts of the operating system, whether, you know, I want to report an issue with applications or with system settings or uh, with some other desktop component. And then you can kind of drill down and get more specific. Um, and then currently it'll take you to the GitHub page for that. And instead of having just like an empty page, we have like a nice form there that kind of takes you step by step and goes, Hey, um, you know, what went wrong? Like what uh, are the steps that you took before it went wrong? And what did you expect to happen instead? And asks you, you know, some information about your operating system that hopefully walks you through the prog process so that you can actually send like high quality issue reports back, but like make it really easy. I, I don't Wonderful. understand why you keep taking these problems that have existed forever <laughs> and fixing them. Like the, I mean, yeah, we know the, these issues are nostalgia yeah, at this point. Like exactly. I love having to do a dance, a little, a sacrifice to the God yeah. and spend 45 minutes trying to find where I report a bug. I don't know why you're changing that for it me. It feels I like want, you're ruining tradition. Yes. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think like, the ultimate goal, like the ultimate vision of what we want the feedback app to look like is like a messages app where you open it up nice. and like mm. when you report an issue, it's like a message in the sidebar and then you can just follow along with the conversation and like do a lot more like awesome. system profiling automatically. Wonderful. Like that's the ultimate goal is to make it a conversation and not feel like a ticket process. Now on the back end, how do you going to manage the amount of tickets and things that come in? Because that seems like it would be I think that's a fear a lot of developers would naturally have. They're, they're smaller teams, even if they're a bigger team, frankly. How do you handle making it so easy to submit bugs and things and you're going to get inundated is the fear with all of these requests. Most of them may be something that has to do with somebody else's software that or setting maybe they change that mess stuff up. Like How, how are you going to get through all of that on the back end and, and deal with all of those? You know, I think that like part of it is having like those issue reporting forms makes it a lot easier for the issues that are reported to be high quality and, and not something that are like really difficult to deal with. Yep. Um, but realistically we do have more issues reported than we have the capacity to deal with. And I think that's just like a forever thing, you know, right. but we, we try to use like smart integrations, like when issues are reported on GitHub and the links get posted immediately in Slack. So I think they get addressed a little quicker. And if it's a duplicate, you know, then we try to mark that really quickly or, uh, we try to address those things as they come in to try to stay on top of it. But, um, yeah, realistically, like, it is kind of a problem that that we have a big backlog and issue triage is a really difficult problem to solve. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Also, you could just apply some traditional approach of having the default first option as won't fix. Won't fix. <laughs> is that Arch? Yeah. Isn't that Arch's way? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a few projects. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because something that um, actually was really important to me when I was going through is making sure that we removed the label for won't fix uh, and replace it with things that actually were good feedback to people. Like we're closing this issue because it's a duplicate or we're closing this issue because it um, conflicts with like the design goals of the app or uh, we're closing this issue because it's out of scope for this app. Like it belongs to some other project. Making sure that we're not closing things is won't fix. Wow. Providing actual like answers 
What is what's yeah. going on with this project? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm falling in love with elementary more and Yay. more. Um, <laughs> so we talked about elementary being well known for its polish and user experience, and that goes without saying. Um, but I always like to know, as the founder, as someone who's been with this project, it's your baby. What are the things that you're most excited about on OS 7? Maybe even things that people won't necessarily just see or exciting to write about, but are just really cool things that you guys have going on there. Yeah, I, you know, I think some of the features that I'm most proud of are things that not everyone will use. And I think they're things that like for the people that need them when they encounter them, that I hope that those people feel seen and loved. Like it's one of those things like uh, in initial setup, right? When you're first uh, setting up the operating system, if you click one of the buttons with the right mouse click button instead of left click, a little thing will pop up and say, hey, like there's a left-handed mode. Do you want to use the right Smart. click as your primary click method? Nice. Yeah. So little things like that, that, you know, everybody who's used to a right-handed mouse will never see that feature. But for the people that use a left-handed mouse, like I want them to feel welcome. Yeah, as a Southpaw, awesome. I feel more welcome now. Oh, good. Yes, because yeah. we're always mistreated in the mice market, you know? They're all curved, all these mice. They, nobody <laughs> right. thinks about us. But you oh, and yeah. Poor, poor Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Danielle, one of my favorite things about elementary OS is not not just how smooth it, smooth it is and um, the UI design, but it's, it is really enhanced for someone like me who only sees out of one eye. A very beautiful experience. The the fonts are nice, even when they're blown up, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and yeah. I I really appreciate that. Your accessibility to, to accessibility is awesome. <laughs> Good, yeah. You know, and a lot of stuff. If you look at like the um, the lengthy release notes we have, we have been working a lot on making sure that things scale better when you're using larger fonts. Um, so especially like in the new version of Granite that's built for GTK4, I think you'll see that like the the interface is a lot more scalable. Nice. Instead of just being like, oh, big fonts, tiny padding. Yeah. You know, like it, <laughs> we really want to make it like a much uh, closer experience to what everybody else sees, something that looks nice for you. That's awesome. So that's you've made it through the gauntlet of all the questions, but we have a second a second gauntlet actually, and this is going to be a, oh, no. a it's a lightning round, and it's just going to be like a fu some fun <laughs> questions. So, what's the first app you install in a new build? Oh, uh, let's see. The first thing, well, it's not really an app, but the very first thing I install is Git. <laughs> nice, but awesome. But after that, like the first app that I install is probably Slack because that's mm. what we're using for communication. So it's like if I have Slack and I have Git, then I can get things done. Very nice. Favorite candy bar? Oh, um, my favorite candy bar is probably. Oh, that's not a candy bar. I was going to say Reese's. That's not a candy bar. Candy bar has uh, got to be Snickers. Nice. Good ah, choice. Snickers. Very good. Dope. Love Snickers. Yeah. Favorite IDE. <laughs> oh, uh, well, elementary code, obviously. It's, uh, my, it's my home. I figured, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and must see movie for people listening. Must see movie. Oh, must see movie. Um, I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time has got to be The Matrix. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. But everybody, everybody yes. knows about The Matrix, right? Yeah. Right. So, um, 
let's see, what's one that that not everybody knows about? There's a really good one with Ethan Hawke that I can't think of the name right now, where it's like um, a time loop, uh, and it's such a trip. But I can't think of the name right now. But it just popped into my head as like a must see movie we're, that we're not a lot of people here. have seen. Uh, predestination, <laughs> yeah, Google, Google, Google. maybe. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's the one. Predestination, <laughs> 2014. I still yep. have to see that. I haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's super good. All right, the next this is the last question in the lightning round, and it's a very important question. No you pressure. Got to get this one right. Yeah, yeah no pressure. Okay. Uh, which would you pick, muffins or cupcakes? <laughs> oh. <laughs> You know, realistically, I don't eat cupcakes very often, but I have muffins all the time. So I'm going to have to pick muffins. No. Yes. Um, no. Perfect. Sorry. Cupcakes <laughs> are the perfect. Oh. Yeah, no. I love cupcakes. So I saw See, the most beautiful yeah. cupcakes the other day where somebody like did this like hand piped like flower designs on them and I, they didn't even look like cupcakes. I was like, this is yeah, crazy. Muffins are just nice. ugly cupcakes. So No, yeah. <laughs> muffins are delicious. We, this is a weird running, uh, this is a I don't know, battle here. between us. When we don't even know why we even care about I don't it even as much as we do. It. It just is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like having a muffin in the morning with my coffee. So nice. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that, that's the best option. Uh, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the show to tell us about Elementary OS 7. We, we recommend people go check it out, the latest release. And we're th so thankful for all the work you've done in open source over the years to bring us an amazing distro option yeah. like this. And we want to we hope to have you on the show real again. Uh, what? We hope to have you on the show again real soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Well, it's not quite the metaverse. Our game this week does let you play as an interdimensional explorer lost in a multiverse. The game is called Multimedium, and you can travel to diverse worlds, and each world is drawn or painted by hand in a different medium and style in search of your place in the cosmos. You, you, can, cool. you do this by jump, jumping, climbing, swinging, swimming, tossing, and grappling your way through 10 diverse universes, each with its own unique, distinct art style, setting, and story. And each level of the game is painted or drawn in a different, different physical medium, scanned, then brought to life in the game. Absolutely no digital art was used in the making of this game. Wow, love this it. Game is absolutely beautiful, and the art and sound design is honestly fantastic. I've gone through several levels, and one of my favorites is the colored pencil level with um, a hand-drawn alien landscape. Oh wow! And in the alien landscape, I I hitched a ride on a rope on a giant red and purple bird-like creature's beak, and. Uh, from his beak, while I was hanging, dangling from the rope, he transported me along the landscape. It was just brilliant. And the language that, that this uh, alien bird speaks is like that of an alien song. It was just... That's like when it, Michael it, talks. It's like an alien song. Yeah. yeah. No idea what's coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. This game is fantastic. It's, 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 I know going to be one of my favorite games for all of this year. Nice. <laughs> and ever. It's in my, I put it in my favorites on Steam. Oh okay? my goodness. <laughs> wow. wow. So when I saw this game, I knew I was like, oh, Jill's going to love taking a look at this one. So when I, but when I saw that all of the levels were hand drawn yeah, and that to me is something that 
my brother creates games. I know how much goes into digitally creating games. I couldn't imagine creating every single scene by hand drawing them, then incorporating it into a video game and allowing people to experience that art on that level, I think is mm-hmm. genius. It just shows absolute passion project. And I love that it's now made it to one of your favorites because yes. that's a long list. Jill has like a bajillion games. I, I do. So if Jill's saying this is one of her favorites, like you need to go check this game out for sure. Like I know I'm going to go immediately buy this game and play it now that you said that, Jill. Like I saw it and thought this looks good, but now hearing you having played it, it sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to be showing this game to my animation students as a great example of hand-drawn art used in a game. Because I I, a lot of my yeah, a lot of my animation students, you know, want to go on and uh you know, create art for games and models for games. So this is, it's it's a perfect example to show them. And one thing I was impressed with is that the movement is very responsive, whether you're using a keyboard or a game controller. And that doesn't often happen when you're using a game where someone uh, scanned in their art. You Oftentimes the movement can be very clunky. Yeah. So <laughs> that was just very, very smooth. Personally, I love games that are unique, creative, and abstract. And the multimedium has it all and keeps you wanting to come back for more. So bravo to the developer, Micah. You have created a masterpiece. Whoa. That is that <laughs> was I crazy. That's some strong yes. words right there. Man. <laughs> I definitely want to try it. That's coming it, from a professor of animation. So like <laughs> that's a big deal right there. Yeah. Wow. Amazing, <laughs> and Jill. And it's only $6.99 on Steam. Go get this game. You know, whether you're into the art or not, just go get this game. It's just really fun. It's a fun romp through the universe. Yeah, I can't wait. (laughs) Our software spotlight is not quite as exciting about as that, but it works in tandem Mm -hmm. with that, which is pretty cool. It's called Nirna. And Nirna. All right, I'm just going to spell it for folks. N-Y-R-N-A, go check it out. There's a flat pack available. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Uh, One of the cool features you may have noticed if you have a console like PS4, PS5, Steam Deck, Nintendo Switch, is the ability to pause and resume where you left off in a game. And what if you could do the same thing on our Linux desktop? Well, if you use Nuna, you could do that. Similar to the incredibly useful sleep suspend function found in consoles that we just mentioned, uh, you can suspend your game and its resource usage at any time and resume whenever you wish at the simple push of a button. And a cool application that, Jill, we were talking about in the pre-show is you could do this with 3D rendering engines, video Mm -hmm. encoding, software compilation. So it's not just for gaming. You can pause other things as well, which could be extremely useful for your students, for instance. Especially when they're rendering on 20 computers. <laughs> exactly. I need you to pause yeah. that so we yes. can do something else and then we'll recreate it. So this is really cool application, really smart uh, thing to create there. So go check it out. They have a flat pack available. Very nice. The tip of the week this week is fdupes. This command is used to find and remove duplicate files on your Linux system. This is a powerful tool that recognizes duplicates by comparing MD5 signatures 
and also follows that with a byte-to-byte comparison. It can be used with the TAC-R, the uh, parameter for recursive searching, which means it will go into directories and find and continuously going until it it ends up in the last directory with all the the last files. So you can, instead of just having one directory searching all those files, you can just say TAC-R and it will search everything and and every every subfolder and everything else. Uh, And also uh, Ryan can use it to get rid of any duplicates of his tens of thousands of photos that he start getting control for. So this is a sure. good tip for Ryan as well. So if you're needing to do some deduplication or just, you know, get rid of some extra files that you don't need, check out FDupes. Michael, you could do that with all the selfies you take of yourself. Just run FDupes and probably no. get down to one photo. <laughs> Ryan, Because you know, they're no, all the absolutely. same. You in front of your computer. Ryan, that's absolutely not. That's completely ridiculous. That that <laughs> surprise. That's that suggests that my selfies are not important. Aww. And th- and there's no <laughs> such thing as a duplicate selfie of my of me because I mean every angle is is something that you should treasure for years and years. Yeah. Can you give us but- your uh, best blue steel? Perfect. Oh man, people need to watch the video version just for that. That was oh, nailed it, man. Wow. It, it could Thank be you. for all that extraneous uh, Michael AI. <laughs> exactly. I also okay. turned left, so that's even. It's even. It's like the high, the upper level of blue steel. Super ah, impressive there. True, you <laughs> Super impressive. If you want to see these antics live in person between all of us here, you know where you need to go. You need to go to Scale. You can meet the DL crew there at Scale. And it's going on at Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. Very so convenient, convenient there. Yep. <laughs> on March 9th through the 12th. So get your tickets ready. Start saving up all your monies so you can go to scale and hang out and check out all the amazing projects. We'll be there, but there's so many other awesome things there as well. And Jill will be there. And that's enough yeah. for you to buy a ticket right there. <laughs> yeah. And make sure to check out our interview with Elon Rabinovich, uh, the the scale chair. We interviewed him, a wonderful interview with him last week. And by, and by chair, is a chairperson, not just we interviewed a chair that had yeah. the resume. It's a chairperson <laughs> yeah, they, of the organization. Next week, just we to clarify. A <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when uh, you're registering for first scale, make sure to use the program pro- promo code TUX on that first page to get 50% off your registration. Wow. Thank you, Man, Jill. So I forgot about that. advantages to listening to us. <laughs> you get $100 free credit at Linode. You get the the dollars off your registration if you're going to scale. Man, I'm going to become a member of this podcast community. It's so Yay. good. Yeah, you should. You should. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love your faces. And if you want to join in in conversations with the rest of the community, head right now to Discord. Go to tuxdigital.com slash Discord. You can have live chat. You can do gaming events, all kinds of cool things right there in Discord. And if you want to watch the show live, become a patron. They get to watch us recording the episode every Sunday live but only if you're a patron in our 60,000 square foot virtual stadium. So more reasons than ever to hit that patron button. Exactly. Do it. Do in it. fact, there's there's more perks that we can talk about. If you're not able to watch it live, that's okay. You can watch the unedited version as a patron. So you go to tuxedo.com slash contribute to become a patron, and you get to join us in our patron-only post-show. Right <gasps> after the show, as soon as we're done recording, you can join us and have a conversation. You know, oh, this amazing. could be 
This could be conversations about the stuff that was on the topic, the topics in the show, or just whatever is on your mind. Cupcakes Join us. with muffins? Of course, muffins, <laughs> obviously. TuxDigital.com slash contribute to become a patron and get all of these perks. Plus, you get tons of other perks because it's not just this show that you're becoming a patron. You're becoming a patron of the entire network, so you get tons of awesome, great perks. So check it out, TuxDigital.com slash contribute. Also, go right now to TuxDigital.com slash store. You can get some sweet swag where we have T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, coasters, hats, so much great stuff. Check it out, TuxDigital.com slash store. And make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on Tux Digital. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and our virtual Linux user group, Linux Saloon, with Cubicle Nate and friends. So everyone head to TuxDigital.com and subscribe to all these great shows. And don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source and keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a wonderful week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Love you. Most of you.